2: Today on the Indo Daily
1: It was clear from the very outset that Tom Nevin didn't have time to react when his killer walked into the room brandishing a shotgun He never stood a chance and he wasn't given one
0: 55-year-old Tom Nevin was shot dead in his pub Jack White's Inn near Arklow, in the early hours of March 19th last year He was killed by a single shotgun blast to the side as he counted the takings after the St. Patrick's holiday weekend.
1: Now, Catherine played the role of a grieving wife to absolute perfection. And in orchestrating that brutal assassination, she was supremely confident that she pulled off the perfect murder.
0: Detective Sergeant Fergus O'Brien of Wicklow said that when he cautioned Mrs. Nevin here at the Bridewell, she said her reply to all the charges was, I am not guilty.
2: Catherine Nevin was the very definition of a femme fatale.
0: In addition to the murder charge, it was alleged that in or about 1989 and 1990, she solicited three other people to murder her husband.
2: Dubbed the Black Widow after her trial, she was found guilty of her husband's murder by hiring a gunman to assassinate him.
1: When Guardi arrived, they found his body slumped on the floor in a pool of blood, a pen in one hand and glasses still on his nose.
2: So how did she do this, and why did she take the name of the gunman's identity with her to her grave? <laughs> I'm Siobhan Maguire and on today's episode, I'm joined by the Irish independence, Paul Williams, to look back at how Catherine Nevin became one of the most high profile killers the country has ever seen. Paul, Catherine Nevin is a name synonymous with intrigue and dark tales of treachery and murder. But can we go back to a time before 1996? Uh, She and her husband, Tom, were running a very successful pub in British Bay in County Wicklow.
1: Yes, Siobhan, they were. um, They they seemed like, uh, perhaps on the surface, the perfect couple. They were running a very successful pub called Jack White's in British and they had been married for several years. And to the outside world, she was a very sort of flamboyant, friendly Uh, charismatic sort of character. He was a a very, describes a gentle giant, very well-liked man, very particularly well-liked by his staff and a successful businessman with probably over a million pounds worth of property to his name at that stage.
2: The Nevins would go on together through the 70s to amass properties in several locations around the city. Flats in Rialto, a house in Clondalkin, a house on the side circular road and Catherine was very much involved decorating the properties and collecting rents.
1: So they seemed like, you know, an average couple who were involved in business. But it was only after his murder that that this sort of very, very disturbing and dysfunctional uh, story of a relationship began to unravel. And we discovered that Katrin Evan was, for all intents and purposes, you know, the classical psychopathic narcissist. You know, she was arrogant, manipulative, devious, avaricious, devoid of all empathy and prepared to go to great lengths to have her husband murdered and in fact, what happened as a result of her husband's murder, it was discovered that she'd been trying to solicit people to murder him for at least seven or eight years beforehand
2: Catherine Scully went to secondary school in the Presentation College in Kildare a former teacher described her as an excellent student, diligent, gifted with her hands, poor Catherine said one, what happened to her at all? She was so good for our girls. So let's go to the 19th of March, 1996. It's the end of a St. Patrick's weekend. So as you can imagine, every pub in Ireland is probably jam-packed with people and tourists and takings are uh, probably very healthy. Mm -hmm. And there's Tom Nevin counting the takings from Jack White. What happens?
1: As he did every night. What we know is that in the early hours of the morning after 4 o'clock, the panic alarm went off in the pub. Um, the guardy arrived within 10 minutes. They found uh, um, Tom Nevin. He had, when I say he had no chance and wasn't given a chance, he, he it, it would appear, and, and the evidence was, that he somebody had just crept up on him and just blasted him at point-blank range, uh, then tied her up, um, and she somehow escaped... Uh, <laughs> know she escaped but she she freed herself to to press the panic button
0: mrs nevin told gardee she heard two cars driving away after the robbery and one of these turned out to be their own black opal omega it was recognised by a motorist who met it near Mount Usher Gardens in Ashford some time after 3am. But it
1: would appear that when the police arrived and started arriving that things just didn't seem right. They knew that once they started investigating and interviewing the staff, this picture of this like, monstrous woman began to uh, emerge. And she was very, very vociferous in front of the staff to express her hatred for the man. And then she was telling people that she was they were separated and they were going to have a separation and, you know, she was going to buy him out. and So when they started looking at all of this, we have motive, clearly motive. However, we find her tied up in her bedroom. There's clearly no forensics to show that she shot him. Somebody came in. There. She either got the keys cut uh, for somebody or she left the door open. Very significantly, at that time, And this all started to emerge in the first 24 hours. Uh, At that time, the staff could stay in Jack White's, a big, big premises, a lot of rooms in it, you know, for renting B&B. And they would normally, a few of them would stay. She said, number one, she wouldn't allow any of them to stay that night. None of them could stay that night. And number two, people had phoned to to, to book in and stay in the B&B and she told people she told her staff to tell these punters from uh, on the phone that the place was booked out even though there was nobody there so she wanted nobody in the premises on the night there was over 16000 pounds in takings disappeared so that's where the police investigation started
0: Mrs Nevin, who ran Jack White's Inn near Arklow with her husband Tom, was being comforted by relatives and friends today. She was said to be in shock following the raid in the pub, in which she was tied up and her husband shot as he checked the weekend's takings in the early hours of yesterday morning. So
2: in 1997, a year after Tom's murder, Paul, Catherine was charged with his death. But her trial wasn't until four years later? Well,
1: there were two trials. The first okay. trial, it, it was perhaps, you know, you talk about, you know, dark tales of intrigue and treachery and murder, and they're the kind of things that grab our morbid curiosity in this country and, and make certain killers stand out from the rest. And we've had Joe Riley, we had the Sister Sisters, you know, we've had Mr. Moonlight Case more recently, we've had Graham Dwyer, of course we have Larry Murphy. Um, but that case was... Very, very, it drew a phenomenal amount of public interest and when there's a phenomenal amount of public interest it means there's a phenomenal amount of media interest because it is a fascinating story and people couldn't get enough of it and it actually became a little bit of a circus the first trial and the first trial was like you know there were photographs of Evan coming in and out of court every day and she was very very well dressed with her tinted glasses her shoulder length blonde hair her thin lips that may you know you could curl up into into the suggestion of that she was you know defiant and smirking but you know we can always interpret people like that anyway you know we but so she she was also cast people used to talk about how her nails were done um what she was dressed in her demeanor in court and there was nearly so much fascination and and focus on that that the trial ultimately was dropped because the jurors could be heard overheard deliberating in the in the jury room but after that the judge uh, placed a very firm um ban on that media coverage on the second trial, Miss Justice Melek Harrell was the presiding judge and she was extremely angered by the tone and the focus of the media reporting and she had ensured that this was not repeated in the second trial. She she said Nevin was, to quote her, entitled to wear in court what she wants without it being dissected and introduced, she, she introduced specific restrictions on reporting, particularly in relation to what we call colour pieces um, and I think that was fair at the time. Um,
2: I mean, I I agree, Paul. I remember uh, the reporting of this case and Catherine Nevin was getting as much tabloid coverage as the Kardashians get today, you know, Uh, down to what she was reading, for example, you know, and as you said, her facial expression, Her
1: hairstyle, her dress, her jewellery, her nail varnish, varnish, the whole lot. Um, it, It was actually, I have to say, you know, Um, unprecedented to a degree you wouldn't get away with that today because it was very prejudicial Mm -hmm. you know Uh, and uh, maybe the the media were just reflecting the attitude towards her in court Um, but so the the second trial was a much more sober affair
2: and they had come up with a very interesting moniker for her as well Paul
1: which I couldn't really use the Black Widow until after the trial but it was certainly one of those that sort of uh, lent itself um, to, to this case you know ultimately I think You know, the big picture, how did uh, did she get caught? How did she get done? Like, remember, there was a wall of circumstantial evidence, but there was no really hard evidence for a long time. And this dedicated team of detectives, basically unraveled her story over a period of time. And central to the court, the state's case against her was the fact that she had been soliciting three people. This was the fascinating part of it, that three people, including one guy who was described himself very openly as a former member of the Provisional IRA, who she had met on several occasions um, to have her husband murdered, and came up every time he, he, he gave evidence, these guys, um, very damning evidence. One of them was had been a former lover of hers. Another guy worked in a Sinn Féin uh, office.
2: There were allegations of affairs with the guard a superintendent and a judge, and false tales of Tom Nevin being an IRA member.
1: They all the guards tracked them all down, found them. They gave, agreed to go and give evidence. Like one of the guys, like Jerry Heaps, was the former IRA man who gave evidence, and he described, like for example, um, that every time he would knock down her idea. She would come back with um with a better idea that she thought was a better idea. You know, let's if you're not going to kill him that way, like one of the ones was one of those suggestions she made to this former IRA man was that um they could ambush um Tom, Nevin, and herself after they had a meal in Dublin. And heaps told her, you know, he said, you can't do that because the bulk of the sh- of the shot would pass to her husband and hit her and put her at serious grave risk. And she, apparently she she said, "But it would look great if Tom was to die in my arms."
2: William McLean said that she had offered him twenty thousand pounds to kill her husband. Jared Heap said she'd approached him ten times to kill her husband, and John Jones said that she'd asked him to get the IRA to kill him and make it look like a botched robbery. This
1: was about uh, three four years before uh, this murder, so clearly. There was, uh, you know, uh, beyond all reasonable doubt, there was motive and there was intent and there was what we call the mens rea as well as the actus reus going on to make this the perfect crime, but not the perfect crime she got away. But she really thought she had it all boxed off and she didn't want to give the police statements at the time. She kept giving herself away. And that's the thing about all of these killers. I haven't yet come across, you come across some really, really clever people uh, when it comes to murders. And very rare you ever see a woman being cast in this role. Most Mostly it's men, because men are the the bad people, really, in society people inflict most of the pain and violence. Uh, but she left a trail of crumbs of evidence all around the place that eventually were all gathered up and used as an impenetrable wall against her. And that's why she spent the rest of her life in prison. And she came out of prison on temporary release Uh,
2: And I was just going to say there, actually, it was a 42-day trial. Um, The jury took five days to deliberate. Uh, She was found guilty.
0: I think it's the only time in my career that I had people leaning out of buses and leaning out of trucks and shouting at me. Mary, is there a verdict yet? Any news from the courts? It was the story that captured the nation.
2: So she goes to Doka's women's prison, Paul. She's a bit of a model prisoner there, though.
1: She was, she was, but she was such a ca- colorful character. She was, you know, there was all these colorful stories used to appear, uh, you know, the papers and stuff about it at the time. But what she was doing, she was running little hairdressing courses, and she became the sort of like auntie to all of the rest of the other female lags, so to speak. But she always maintained her innocence right up to the day she died, which again, by the way, is is all within the sort of that particular paradigm, you know, that yeah. psychopathic paradigm. She, you know, y- you're not going to um, admit to, you were never going to admit to it, even on her dying bed. And she didn't. She gave evidence herself in the trial and uh, she played a stormer, well, tried to play a stormer. Again, she thought she knew more than everybody else. And that's one of the biggest mistakes that all these, the, it's the mistake that all killers make, I think, uh, particularly murders like this, like Joe O'Reilly, classic. There were so many, you know, crossovers and, and, and similarities between him, Joe O'Reilly, and Catherine and Evan. But one of the quotes she said, like, which was one of the big lies, um, she said, I never at any stage of our married life wanted Tom out of my life, ever. Tom was a big, big part of my married life, and he always will be. Yet, she used to be in bed with her one particular lover on a regular basis to such an extent that she would ring down to the kitchen and say to staff to come up, bring up breakfast to us. And she made no effort to hide it. She made no effort to humiliate her husband in front of everybody. She, had no, she was no way reluctant or reticent about telling her staff and letting any people know that she hated the sight of the man. Yet these are the kind of lies she told in court. And she tried to portray him as being a, a brutal man, again, to try and paint the picture of a monster but the reality was he was the gentle giant and she was the monster.
0: I remember describing it to people at the time as like walking into a room every day and having somebody read a bestseller to you because every day you went in thinking the incredible stories that you'd heard the day before couldn't possibly be surpassed and they were surpassed. Which again is
1: why this was, I suppose, to use the vernacular from our business, a sexy story because how many times have we seen a woman so so callous, so premeditated, and so dangerous. And I think the judge, Judge Melicarol, in this it, at the end of the her the trial when she'd been convicted and the jury returned, as you say, guilty pleas after a record twenty nine and a half hours. Um, at that time, I think there was there's been it's been broken a few times since. But she said, "You had your husband assassinated, and you also tried to assassinate his character." Really, put it in perspective. Uh, the, his family tom nevin's family was is in, inter- interesting to recall i think they in, they initiated change in the irish legal system in that they wanted to deprive her of all of his property because she he had she had him murdered and that's still a debate in and i th- i think there's been laws there are laws being mooted in relation to that 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 cannot happen again and uh, that people if if you and I are married and I murder you then and you've lots of money uh, that there should be a case whereby if I'm convicted of murder why then should I automatically get all your money when it's what I went, murdered you for in the first place
2: Paul I want to ask you about uh, Catherine after she left uh, Doka's prison. uh, She served 17 years. Now, she did have cancer and she did eventually pass away in 2018. Good evening, you're welcome. Convicted murderer Catherine Nevin has died after spending almost two decades behind bars. The 67-year-old had been diagnosed with a brain tumour and died at a care facility last night. As you said, she brought a very important secret with her to her grave and that is the gunman who pulled that trigger. Do we have any idea as to who Catherine did actually use in the plot to kill Tom Nevin?
1: Well Siobhan we certainly do and the man in the frame is Patrick Eugene Dutchy Holland. Dutchy Holland is better remembered as the man who shot dead our colleague Veronica Gearn four months later uh, on the Nace Road. Ironically Veronica was one of the journalists who went down and met Catherine Nevin and one in remembering how formidable a character Veronica was uh, Veronica would have given it to her big time uh, and also Catherine Nevin would have been intimidated by other women she liked to manipulate and exploit men because they were gobshites the best of times she reckoned but here was Veronica and I remember do, do, I did read a piece and saying that was I'd love to have been a fly on the wall when Veronica went into that bar to meet her the ironic interaction between those those two stories is that Veronica was murdered by the exact same man that we believe, and the Gardaí still absolutely believe, Dutchie Holland murdered Tom Nevin. Why? She was trying to find people for years. The people it, it, she went to, within that milieu of sort of quasi-Republicans and former Republicans and people like that, people of a certain groupage, um, he was very much involved with those people, Dutchie. Now Dutchie it did, not become, it did not become known that Dutchie, for example, was a professional hitman for hire for years. Um, he came out of prison about 93. He, he had been professionally available to kill people, but very, very discreetly, as nobody knew. His name wasn't floating around like there would be today, the names of assassins. Uh, he lived down the road from her. She would certainly have met him. She would have certainly been able to zone in on him because she knew he had connections because he had done time for possession of explosives that he was selling to the IRA. He was like, he, he she would have known those kind of people. She probably would have heard it from her, her garda, ex garda lover, that this guy is living in the area. He's a wrong one. He's a very dangerous man. He's done serious time. We just don't have the absolute proof. But I, I, I'd be inclined. She brought that secret to the grave. or. I would go to my grave absolutely believing that Dutchie Holland murdered him because I believe he, he mur- murdered Tom Nevin, he murdered Veronica, he murdered a lot of people. Uh, and he was a cold blooded assassin, and everything would point to him. And it was, it could be, it's his MO. He was totally callous, cold blooded character himself. And he could have walked in there and blown away without blinking an eye.
2: And Paul, just finally, when we think about and talk about Catherine Nevin, could this have been the perfect murder?
1: In hindsight, when you analyze and look at everything as the case lay, it would unfolded, no, because there was a lot of circumstantial evidence. But circumstantial evidence is no good. You can't go to the DPP with circumstantial evidence saying, I think Siobhan Maguire killed somebody. How do you know that? She told me, or, you know, that's not really much evidence unless I have something to back it up or to corroborate it. And a belief is what it is, just that a belief. Um, I think it was when the police started digging deep into her, into her background. It seemed... In her mind, I would say that she had the perfect murder because most of these narcissists will think that she thought it all through. She was thinking about it for five, six, seven years. She clearly did not ever suspect that the police would ever find these three guys that she tried to solicit. In a way, if she hadn't tried to solicit people to murder her husband and those people and they were never found and they never agreed to come and give evidence then he, she would have got away with the crime. However, she would have always remembered the, re, remained the prime suspect for this brutal crime. Uh, but that's one thing. like She could have lived with that because she was the kind of individual from what we read about her, and what we know about her, that she would have given a damn about that. She would have actually probably loved the notoriety.
2: Well, she did play the victim very well.
1: Like All of them are like that. Larry Murphy, we discussed here before, you know, on this podcast, Larry Murphy's big problem always was, why are they picking on me? Poor me, like they're asking questions. Why could they possibly be asking? Joe O'Reilly was the same, you know. Um, um, Graham Dwyer, in particular, was. To, he had oodles and oodles of self pity for himself, and how badly treated he had been by everybody. And it was atrocious how he'd been treated. That's most of these killers are like that. But she, she f- fought the law. She tried to pull the wool over everyone's eyes, and she lost.
2: And my thanks there to the Irish Independence, Paul Williams. I'm Siobhan Maguire and today's episode was researched and produced by myself with sound by Gavin Hennessy. Archive clips from RTE, Virgin Media Television, TV3, Talk, and Independent.ie. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.